morning again. I feel like I've been up and down today. Uh, I'm back here. Good morning. Glad you're here. So glad you're here today to hear the Word of God as Leslie's read it as we continue this series now uh, in the Gospel of Mark. As we jump back in, remember, real quick recap. Remember, it was the earliest Gospel written, probably 50, uh, 50s A.D., within the life of those who would have seen the risen Christ uh, in the 50s A.D. Remember, it was a, it's an account of Peter's testimony. Peter's words and, and interactions and what he saw recorded by Mark. Recorded by John Mark. Uh, it's fast-paced, do you remember? Uh, you heard the word immediate again today. Some 41 times it's mentioned. Immediate. It's in there. It's action-packed. Jesus is portrayed as more of a, a doer as an, or more of an action figure. And we've got less teaching than Matthew and John. And we are joining Him then now on the ground. We're coming alongside as He lives, as He moves, as the crowds gather in as enemies rally against him to follow him to the cross. Because as he walks each and every way, you know who he's got there with him? You and I, if you're a believer of Christ. He's living it for you. He's walking the steps for you. He's obeying for you. Uh, he's performing the miracles for us to know and see who he is. Remember, too, the primary portrayal of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark is the Son of God who is a suffering servant king. Mark 10.45 says this, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. He will usher in the kingdom like they have never seen before as He comes and dies in a way nobody ever expected as the suffering servant giving His life as a payment for sinners. You know, when we had our first daughter, we kind of racked our brains trying to pick a name. Um, I liked, it was a, I liked it when it was a simpler time when you could just choose a name. But you didn't have to run statistical analysis on you know, how popular the name is or, or if they might get made fun of for this name, said name. And I'm kind of kidding, I'm kind of. But uh, well, we, we chose the name of Angeline for our first daughter. And I was partial to it because of a great uh, folk rock song sung by Emmylou Harris and the band. Maybe you've heard it before. Uh, Robin, because of a Canadian uh, po a long poem called Evangeline by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. You can tell who's more cultured of the two of us. <laughs> well, and actually really it was because of the word uh, Evangeline. The word itself. It means gospel. It means gospel. You might hear the root in there uh, of evangelical or evangelist. It really means good news that brings Great joy. That's what the word means. And Juliet, remember, he asked Romeo, what's in a name? What's in a name? And this name, or, or word, you might say, evangeline, or the Greek word euangelion is the Greek word. You hear it in there. Or evangelist. In that name, in that word, a lot. A lot is in that word. Well, today, as the ministry of John the Baptist recedes now into the background with his arrest, Jesus' ministry is going to come up to the foreground, to the front and center of Mark's Gospel with his message of the kingdom. And he begins by preaching this word, the name, euangelion, the Gospel. It's how he starts. This morning we're going to look at two aspects of the Gospel. The good news call of the kingdom and the call to follow the king. Two aspects today. So grab your outline. Hopefully you got it there. We've got some fill-ins for you to follow along, to jot some notes. Hopefully you have your text open to Mark 
chapter 1. And let's begin by looking at the good news call, the good news call now of the kingdom. Let me get there myself and Mark. As we, let's look at verses one, uh, 14 and 15 actually of Mark chapter 1 together. It says this, the Spirit, uh, excuse me, now after Jesus was arrested, or after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. It's the first time we hear Jesus' words, Jesus' voice in the gospel. This is the voice of your Savior now. Coming to the forefront of Mark's gospel as he speaks for the first time now. You know, first words, first impressions, they're, they're important, aren't they? We think about them at times, don't we? We worry about our first impression at times. But they don't mean everything, do they? In fact, how many times have you had a first impression change by later interactions with somebody else? Somebody you thought seemed kind of shy on a first impression turns out to be pretty outgoing. Or someone you thought came across a little arrogant maybe the first time, or they seemed kind of pr- pr- uh, proud. And the first impression actually turned out to be pretty humble and kind. Well, here, Jesus' first impression is going to stick. And it's not going to change. He was very intentional about his first impression. And Mark, too, about recording what it was. His good news call of the kingdom is not going to change. It's not going to go away. He's going to stay on point or on this message, you might say, his entire life. He's never going to divert. And so must we. The good news about the kingdom of God. So let's unpack it a bit. Let's unpack it. If it's Jesus' first impression and the message he stays on point with, let's unpack this good news a bit with what Jesus says here as he begins to preach. I wanted us to revisit. To revisit a theme from a couple weeks back, if you remember, because I think it is that important. It's so important. Uh, and, the, and the gospel word is mentioned here twice even in these verses. And it shows up again as he's proclaiming the gospel. And he's asking his hearers to believe in the gospel. And this good news is just that. It is news. Here's what we, we hit this theme last week, but we're going to come to it again. Good news. The gospel is good news that has been accomplished rather than good advice to be followed. It's so important, I, I thought it valuable to come back to it again, and the text does drives us there too. It's good news that's been accomplished rather than good advice to be followed. It's so important to our Christian life that we see this. We've got to catch this. That's why we're revisiting it. A gospel news, a good news, is good news because it's about an event that already happened. It's about something that has already taken place. When the text says Jesus proclaimed the gospel, it really means he heralded it, he called it out loudly. That's what it literally says. He called it out loudly. The kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is at hand. I used to have this picture in my office. Um, i I, I got to find it. I don't know where it is actually right now. But it's a picture that I love to have up because it reminded me of something. It's a picture of uh, V-Day. Do you know that? Uh, uh, May 8th, 1945. Uh, V-Day, sometimes they say it's Victory Day. It's kind of 
uh, a little curious why they use that. But nonetheless, it is that victory day where they marked that formal acceptance by the Allies in World War II of Nazi Germany's unconditional surrender of its armed forces. Can you imagine, for just a moment, just try to imagine, we're in the middle of World War II, the joy and the peace and this, the weight that had lifted on that day and the freedom and peace they would have felt. I mean, you can see it. You can see it on their, on their face and these pictures. I love these old pictures. How about this one? Here's another one. I love that. you got the raised hand in the middle. That guy just like, you know, you can just see it on their faces. The joy that they uh, are feeling. We have victory. We've got it. We've done it. There's victory. We've won. I mean, they were so excited, they were even doing conga lines in D.C. <laughs> I love that picture. It's great. But there was a day before that day that was more important. A real historical event had to happen before the good news of surrender could be proclaimed and celebrated. It was this day, D-Day. June 6, 1944. It was a couple days before. Decisive battle when the Allied forces, when they stormed Normandy, when they defeated German forces, and they won the battle and really the war there. It was the beginning of the end for the Nazis. D-Day had to happen before V-Day could take place. D-Day for us is the day Christ won the battle and the war on the cross. That's what we have. Defeating sin and death by dying for you. But here's the thing, as Christians even, too many of us at times live as if we need to fight our own battle, as if it all ultimately depended on me. Now yes, we need to fight the battles against sin that remain in our life. But the larger war has already been won. That's what we have. The larger war has been accomplished. Too many of us are living and tend to live out of our own constant D-Day. You see, Christianity and the Gospel is good advice. Just live this way or live that way. That's not the freedom you see on the faces in those pictures. If that's the Gospel, live this way to connect to God, keep these rules to connect to God, that's actually bondage. And a really heavy weight, actually. A heavy weight to be carried. You wake up feeling, I never measure up. Defeated from the time the alarm goes off. Constantly feeling like you have to earn God's approval fresh every day. Try this tactic. Do this. Do that to connect to God. Good advice just weighs you down. I mean, it may inspire you for a season. But then what happens? You go back to your old ways you're just defeated, and nothing has really changed from the inside out. When Christ comes and proclaims good news, He says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. If you believe it, that D-Day's happened at the cross, that the war has been finished, then live out of V-Day. Live out of that victory day. That's what we have. They don't look way down, do they? They don't look weighed down because they're living already out of the real historical event that they knew happened and they could believe. Look, they got a newspaper there to prove it. We've got the Word of God, don't we? To prove it. Victory has happened. 
Victory has happened. Live with the victory of the Gospel. The victory of the cross at the center of your life. As if something great has already been done for you. The good news that has happened because it has. That's what we have. But to have that message now at the center of your life, you have to heed the kingdom call. First, you must repent, Jesus says. Here we move on to repentance means. What does it mean? A change of mind that leads to a changed life. Have you ever thought about that? What, what, is, what does that mean? Repent. It's all over the Gospels. It's all over the book of Acts. Repent and believe, they say. What does repentance actually mean and look like? Let's, let's dig deeper uh, into that together, can we? Sometimes, uh, maybe all, even too often, this idea of repentance gets uh, lopped off or, or cut off from belief. Or at best, maybe we get a, a, a small mention. When the two in the New Testament, they always go hand in hand. Repentance and faith are, are wed. They go together. They go together. You remember last week, we talked about this idea that you and I, we were created, we were made to live with God at the center of our universe. God at the center of uh, our universe. Our hearts. Uh, as our king. That's how we were made. That's what we were made for. That's our purpose. And God in His triune nature, you remember from last week, three persons in one God, remember, that means He has been a relational being from all eternity in Father, Son, and Spirit. And He made us then to invite us into that relationship. Remember C.S. Lewis, we talked about last week, called it a dance. The Trinity has been living forever for eternity, Father, Son, and Spirit in perfect, loving relationship. And He made us to invite us into that. Into that. The middle of that. We saw it last week, this idea, that relationship they had from eternity at Jesus' baptism. Do you remember? Father, Son, and Spirit were all there loving one another, caring for one another, supporting one another, encouraging one another. But as sin entered the world, here's what happened. God was taken out of the center and who was put there? Ourselves. Ourselves. That's what sin does. I mean, that's really the problem with everything. We've chosen to be, as Adam did from the garden, we've chosen to be our own king, our own queen. Remember last week we talked about that. When we sit at the center of our universe, what happens? When we're at the center, when we're on our own throne, what, what happens? Everyone else in our life revolves around us. They center around us. They revolve around us. We become the static one, the unmovable one, right? The unchangeable kind of center of our own universe. We become self-obsessed. How am I feeling? How, how are they treating me? Is it fair? Am I getting my rights? Am I getting what I deserve? Am I proving myself? And what do we end up doing? We end up kind of, we end up kind of shriveling up. It's actually a sad way to live. I love the picture of it that comes in the great book, The Lord of the Rings. Um, 
you, do you remember Gollum in the Lord of the Rings? If you've either read the book or seen the movie, he's probably, probably one or the other for most of us in here. The hobbit who finds the ring, as he finds it. We're going to get a lot of Lewis and Tolkien. We just finished Narnia and we just started The Hobbit, so you're, we're probably going to get a bunch of it in the next few weeks. Gollum is this picture of self-centered sin. And the ring is his idol. He's got to have it. And it's so powerful. Remember the movie? It changes his appearance even, doesn't it? He shrivels up in the way he looks. This idea of this, this thing he has and he, and he hunches over. Remember the picture? And he, he strokes this ring as idol. And you remember what he calls it? My precious. I'm not going to do an impersonation, but my precious, he says. My precious, he calls it. My precious, as he holds on to it. He becomes mastered by it. This all-consuming desire of self and what he had in his clutch. Right? Why do relationships break down? Why are you struggling in your marriage? Why are you so angry at your parents, maybe? Why do we have breakdown in culture, in families, in organizations, in cities? It really comes down to self-centered living. Living with ourself at the center of our universe. When we're living that way, we've walked away from V-Day. We've walked away from it. Or maybe it's because we never came into that dance of the Trinity in the first place. Maybe you're not living out of that V-Day. Repentance means this. You and I have to see this, think this, and then live this. It means acknowledging that you've set yourself in the center of your universe and it is not working. It's not working. It's both a decision of the mind to turn away from that, from the self, to Christ. That's what repentance is. It's a willful act of turning from your sin, your precious, to your Savior, the King, who died for you. Repentance means that. And it always, let me say that again, it always results in real life change. Always. It always results in real life change. But that changed life comes through belief in the king. That's where we're going to head next. Belief in the king. So repentance is a willful act of turning from ourself, from our self-salvation project, away from our preciouses, whatever those may be, towards Christ. Belief in the king is where we head next. As I said, true repentance of sin always leads to a substantial change in your life. That's so important. Because if you call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ and say you believe in Him, and yet you've never seen any change in your life, I would tell you to go back and re-examine that initial claim. Repentance leads to a change of life. And I would say an ongoing change in your life. Ongoing work of Jesus. As we practice an ongoing repentance and belief. And that ongoing change comes through belief in the King. As you talk about these stories, you're talking about the idea of a king and, and being at the center of, of God and the center of his relationship in the Trinity. Most people actually would want, I think, a good, benevolent, kind, loving, all-powerful king to come back and make things right someday. What do most people 
to be rescued, to have your wounds bandaged by someone else, whatever those may be, to have that ultimate thirst quenched by something perfect, to have the safety of a loving, good, benevolent, all-powerful, sovereign. I think most people would jump at that chance. Jesus says the time is fulfilled and the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is at hand. He's saying the kingdom's here in one sense. The kingdom's here where God is ruling and reigning in hearts as Jesus began His ministry. But it's also not yet. The kingdom's still to come too, isn't it? It's here, it's already, where God is ruling and reigning in hearts. But it's not yet, right? It's not perfectly safe. We still live in a fallen world. Bad things still happen. It's not yet. It's already not yet, present and future. But doesn't each and every one of us want someone to come back someday and ultimately save you from death? Save you from the dungeon of your sin and your own sorrow and sadness and put this world right. We used to have to turn on the news every other day and you can see things are messed up. Things are broken in this world. Everybody calls for peace. Everybody wants it. Everybody wants a king who could put it right. That king will come back. And his name is Jesus. That is this king. And that kingdom will ultimately someday be realized. I love this quote from the last battle. It's the last book of uh, the Narnia series. All their life in this world and all their adventures had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, and which every chapter is better than the one before. Doesn't that sound glorious? That's what's coming. That's the kingdom to come. The kingdom to come will be like we're on page, we're on just the title page. And it's hard, and it doesn't make sense. You ever read title chapters? What is this book about? Sometimes they're not very good, are they? Like, that didn't line up at all with what I read. But that's where we're at. We're on the title page if eternity's really ahead of us. And every chapter, and I would go further to say, every page is going to be better than the last. That's the kingdom to come. That's what awaits us. So it's already, but not yet. Already, but not yet. But doesn't that give you hope in the here and now? If that's really what the kingdom is going to be like someday? When he becomes our king, your king, he begins to change you and to heal you and to put the pieces back together and to rip those precious little idols away. And we see it happen immediately in Mark's story. Here's the call to follow the king. Let's take a look at it. If you got your word there, look at verse 16 through 20. It's short, so we'll read it again. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of, uh, of Simon, casting a net into the sea. For they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat 
with the hired servants and, and followed him. So Jesus comes along the seaside here. And he calls his first disciples. Do you know, I'm new to Oregon, so some of the history of Oregon I'm also coming to as well. I just recently heard of the story of the, um, the Rajneesh Purim community. Most of you are like, really? We've known about that for decades. But I'm new to an area, and I actually had a faint memory of it as a child coming, popping up in the news. It was that community out in Wasco County, Oregon. Um, fascinating. Scary story. How this Indian guru... Uh, the Bhagwan set up this cult, really, cult community out in the countryside, and the people flocked, didn't they, out there to place themselves under his authority. And they traveled, some on bus, some on plane, some from India all the way over here to Oregon, all the way over to the United States to sit under this teacher's authority. They came to him. He set up a shop out in the desert, or out in the wilderness, you might call it, out there, and they came to him. Why do I remind us of this story this morning? Not to be, you know, over-sensationalized or bring up some kind of wild story, but because it portrays really the pattern of the ancient world. Of how a disciple would come, how a pupil would come and find their rabbi. Now obviously, rabbis were using God's Word, not setting up uh, a wilderness cult, right? Rabbis in the Old Testament. But that's the similar way it would take place. A people would go, choose a leader to learn under, a certain rabbi, and say, teach me. They would choose out their rabbi. And they would give the rabbi a unique authority in their life. What Mark is showing us is that Jesus has an authority like no one else. You and I don't necessarily go to him. He comes after us. He calls you. That's what Mark's showing us here. In Jesus' actions, Jesus goes up to them, turning upside down the culture they would have had at that time. It was their job to go find a teacher to sit under. He goes after them, and Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. It's an other world type of authority Mark's showing us. You follow me. I'm calling you to follow. And if you follow, I will make you into something. I will make you fishers of men. We're getting a picture of grace. We're getting a picture of grace. The king calls us. The king makes us. It really means this is grace. It's all of grace. Jesus doesn't say to them, all right, guys, I'm ready to tell you the good news. Here's my list of advice on how to live your life to connect to God and do this or clean up your act a bit and then we'll see if you're acceptable enough to join my group of disciples. No, he says, I'll come from heaven to earth to call you, to save you, to find you, and I'll come after you right where you're at. You don't have to clean yourself up first. He just comes and says, follow me. That's grace. Those disciples just got called as they were in the middle of their regular day doing their job, didn't they? They, weren't, they didn't have their best errors on or their best foot forward, I'm sure. He just came to them and said, follow me. Essentially, he says, come. He says, come. Come now as you are, basically what Jesus is saying to them. As you are. I think it was an old hymn, wasn't it? As you, as come as you are, I think it was called. 
but you must come. You must come. This picture of sovereign grace working in the lives of these men. There's nothing special about them to receive this unmerited favor. I will call you. I will make you. Just come. Just follow, he says. Follow me. And what do we see? Peter and Andrew, two brothers, leave their nets to follow him. They walk away from their business and their livelihood in faith. In faith. That was a big step, wasn't it? Well, I mean, think about James and John there. Two more brothers. It's almost even a a bigger step of faith. They leave their father standing there with the nets in his hand. He's probably like, guys, guys, James, John, especially in a patriarchal culture where family and and your family was the center of everything, their faithfulness is astounding. They leave their father with his nets in his hands and the servant's standing by. And immediately, Mark says, did you catch the word there again? Immediately, they followed. There's that word, they followed in faith. And it's a radical call to them because they have to walk away in some ways from their livelihood and their family. What's he really asking them to do is to reorient their allegiance and their entire lives to his mission. That's what he's asking them to do. I'll make you fishers of men. He's asking them to reorient their allegiance and their lives to his mission And when he calls you, here's what happens. Our allegiance, your allegiance will transfer to the priorities of the king. Your allegiance will transfer too. Not just saying you believe, not just turning from sin and self, but it begins to impact every area of your life as our allegiances, the things we are beholden to, the things that we've committed to, begins to shift and change too. When you believe the gospel, you believe in the king, it truly impacts your actions, your life, your priorities, your values. And that faith, that faith is stepping out, really. That faith is action-based obedience upon the reality you're believing. Let me say that again. Faith is really, it's an an action-based obedience on the reality you're believing. God's reality. Jesus, God in flesh, was calling them. And if you're living out of V-Day, think about it. What do you really have to lose? If the battle's been won, what do you really have to lose? Even if you lose the most precious thing that you've got, your life, you're all of a sudden there with those with standing arms outraised. Victory has come. What do you have to lose? If you're living out of the good news that's been accomplished, what could be taken away, actually? What could you actually lose if you're living out of V-Day? And that's how the, the, what, what centers your life and orients you. What can be taken away from you by obedience that Christ hasn't already purchased for you? At the cross. What's he asking you to give up? To follow him. What's he asking you to give up to follow him? What's, what's my, what's my allegiance really tied to in some places more than him? We all have those things. I do too. Is it your family, like these men? Your career, your hobby, your political party, your nation even? Is the allegiance greater there than to Christ? It's a good question for us all to ask. All these good things, and they're good things in and of themselves, can ultimately steal your ultimate allegiance from Him. And they're all good. They're all good things. 
Do you know in another place, Jesus was uh, famous for saying shocking words? Even those that don't believe in Jesus know he said some things that were shocking. Do you know another place in Luke's Gospel, Jesus says this to a massive crowd. Massive crowd now. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. We're talking about disciples here in Mark. What in the world is Jesus saying? Because he's doing this with Mark, or with Peter and uh, Andrew, James, and John. He's doing this with them right here. Anyone, he says. Now, not just the disciples, not just the real important guys. Jesus says here, if anyone comes to me, that's anyone who ever comes to Christ, wants to enter into the heart of the Trinity, the dance we've called it, has to hate these things? What does that mean? Well, we know in other places too. You know in other places he says to not hate even your enemies, right? What could he be saying? He's not saying you must actively hate your family. Actively hate your life. He's calling us to hate by comparison. By comparison. He's saying, if you want to follow me so fully as your king, so completely as your Lord, that by comparison, every other attachment in your life looks like hate. That's what he's saying. He couldn't be saying actively hate those in your life, but he's saying, if you followed me, if your allegiance has transferred to me, by comparison, everything else in your life, when they look at what your allegiance is to me, will look almost like hate. He's, he's, it's hyperbole. He's saying something really obviously exaggerated for us to really get the point. My passions become your passions. My loves become your loves. My life becomes your life, Jesus says. It's a transfer of allegiance in a big way. They're, hard, they're strong words, aren't they? If we come to Jesus and say, you know, I will follow you if Fill in the blank. I will follow you if you keep me happy. I'll follow you if you uh, give me health. Fill in the blank with whatever you'd like there. I'll follow if you give follow if you give me this or with that. Whatever is in the blank is actually your real precious, your real king, and maybe even your real goal in life. Whatever's on the other side. Jesus wants all of us. And what's amazing is when he becomes the center, we think, well, well, I'll lose that thing. I'll lose my family. I'll lose this. I'll lose my love of that hobby. I'll lose my love of this, the thing I'm really tied to. What's amazing is that when he becomes the center of your life, the irony is those things, you actually end up enjoying them more because they don't have a stranglehold on your life. And so when you lose them at times, you're not absolutely undone and devastated. It hurts, but you've got your real center which is the king. You actually end up enjoying them more. It's not like God's saying, follow me, you've got to give up all these good things. No, you make him the center, they become even more enjoyable because he puts them in their proper place. Puts them in their proper place. Remember, here's our picture one more time. That Copernican revolution, we started out that way in this world. We thought the earth was the center, but, which is ourselves, but what happened? The sun, we realized, oh, it's actually a different model. How does he become the center of our life? And not us and ourselves. 
It's simple in many ways. Repent and believe the gospel. Turn from self and turn to the great king. Turn from self and believe the good news. That's, that's the good news that's already happened. Remember D-Day and V-Day? Jesus has gone to D-Day so we can have V-Day. That's what we live out of. Acknowledge your sin. Even again today. Turn every day from it. Turn every day from it to belief in Christ, realizing it's all of God's grace and favor for you because of Jesus. And keep living every day through repentance and faith. And when you do that, here's what happens. More and more, you'll begin to become more and more revolved around Him and His mission and His heart and His desires. And you'll become so other-oriented as He takes you out of the center of your life that you will wear the name Evangelist, Fisher of Men. When we are taken out, Good News Herald, Fisher of Men and Women, that's what will happen. That's what I want for each and every one of us. That's what I want for us as a church. That Jesus Christ and His Gospel becomes the center of everything and who we are. It was His first words. It was His all the way through words and His last words. Let it be ours too. Let's pray.